John 6, starting with verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there, that is the Judeans, began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews, that is the Judeans, began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, 
and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Lord, we pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock, in our Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, this is Jesus' famous sermon about being the bread of life. It's often called the bread of, the bread of life discourse. And he gave it while standing in a synagogue in Capernaum. But he also gave it within a certain context. Uh, this bread metaphor didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, we've been in John 6 for, this is our third week now. So if we think back on the last two weeks, uh, we'll get the context. Uh, two weeks ago, what was Jesus doing? He was standing on a mountainside, thousands of people there. It says 5,000 men, so who knows how many people, thousands, are there. They need to be fed. And Jesus teaches, does an object lesson that teaches disciples something. And they find a kid that has some loaves and some fish, and Jesus multiplies the bread for the thousands of people. Now, surely some of the people there realize what was going on, but if you're way in the back, you probably can't see it. You're just The bread is just being passed back to you. But the disciples saw it, and the people up close saw it. Jesus is multiplying bread, and the word had to get out, right? This is a miracle. Well, Jesus does that miracle. This is in Galilee. Galilee's in the north. Now, in this time, uh, we... Well, obviously, it's all over the news. We tend to think of this as Israel or Palestine today. But back in those days, it was Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. Right? Judea is where Jerusalem is. Like when, in John's Gospel, where in our English Bibles, it says the Jews. Actually, it's, the word is Judeans. That's the people who live in the south. It's where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is where the religious establishment is. And Samaria is in the middle. That's the woman at the well. That's sort of a... Uh, yeah, they worship God, but they're not really Jewish. It's sort of this other thing. We've talked all about them. Galilee is in the north. Galilee, lots of Jewish people live there. Lots of Canaanite people live there. There's a heavy Roman presence in Galilee. Galilee is sort of a, at this time, it was sort of a revolutionary uh, hotbed. There were several uh, false messiahs that came out of Galilee. Uh, Sephorus is in Galilee, which was one of which was a, like an imperial city that was being built around this time. Jesus grew up a carpenter in Galilee. He might have been a day laborer in Sephoris. So this is, this is a, an empire-controlled region full of the people of God and others. That's Galilee. So Jesus is in Galilee. He does this miracle, and it says they tried to make him king. Now, there's political, social overtones there, right? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't want anything to do with that whole movement to try to make him king that way at this time. So he slips out of the crowd, goes up on the mountain to pray, tells the disciples to get in the boat, cross the lake. They get into a storm. 
what happens? Jesus does the second sign. He comes walking to them on water. Remember that? And then they get to the other side, which is Capernaum. That's where they are now. Now with those first two miracles, the dividing the bread for thousands and walking on water, we learned some valuable lessons. We learned uh, that Jesus himself is God's great gift to the world. The kingdom is important, but the kingdom is not God's big ultimate gift. It's Jesus. It's the king. And we don't want to miss the king because we're trying to establish some kingdom. We also learned that God works in our lives to curate the environment of our lives. Like he caused a storm to rise up. So we would see Jesus for who he is. God caused a storm to rise up so the disciples could see Jesus as God-man walking on water. And he does that in our lives. He curates the circumstances of our lives so we would see Jesus. So that's everything that's happened so far. Across the lake, they went to Capernaum. So Capernaum is sort of Jesus' hometown, at least at this point in his life. This is his home base for ministry. Um, Most of Jesus' ministry we read about in the New Testament happened either in Jerusalem in the south or Capernaum in the north or somewhere in between traveling in between the two. So he's in Capernaum. So this crowd from the multiplying bread thing, thousands and thousands of people, think about the environment, revolutionary hotbed, tried to crown Jesus, he disappeared. This crowd... Uh, went on a hunt to find Jesus. So now there are thousands of people in Galilee going from place to place. Have you seen Jesus? No. Have you seen Jesus? No. Have you seen Jesus? You can imagine. Door to door, village to village. And then finally this crowd centers on and lands on this synagogue in Capernaum. And there they find him. Where do they find Jesus? At church in his hometown. (laughs) That's where they find him. And so they come in, and Jesus starts teaching. And what does he use as his big metaphor to teach? Well, he draws from this experience they just had, him multiplying bread. And he teaches them about himself. He is the bread of life. So that's what's happening. What's interesting about this passage, though, especially the way that John records it and delivers it to us, is that Jesus' bread of life discourse, it actually happens as a Q&A. People ask questions, Jesus answers. They ask another question, Jesus answers. And if we put all his answers together, we get the sermon. And maybe that's how lots of Jesus' sermons happen, but at least in this one, John gives us the actual questions. And that should inform the way we read this. That's important. One of the things we've talked about quite a bit is when we read Bible stories, uh, it's good for us to try to place ourselves in the story. What would it be like if I was there? What would I learn if I was one of Jesus' disciples in this moment? What would I learn if I was in the crowd? So I want to do that in this story. I want us to place ourselves in that crowd. Listening to Jesus asking questions and so in order to do that I want to take some time and I want to look at there's, there's five questions that the people ask Jesus three 
that come on the front end, and then there's two in the back that it says that the Judeans asked. Now, in this group, there would have been Galileans there, and obviously there's Judeans there. It's interesting, in the last two questions, the Judeans asked. We don't know who asked the first three, but we want to look at these questions. How does Jesus answer them? And ask ourselves, what is John, the gospel writer, trying to teach us? What, what do we need to learn from this? What are we picking up as we put ourselves in this story? So that's what I want to do. So first, let's consider the questions. Um, let's first do the first three. Okay, that's how we're going to move it, move through it. First, imagine yourself there. There's a huge crowd in this synagogue, probably because it started with thousands of people, probably overflowing out in the streets. It's shoulder to shoulder. We're packed in. Jesus is there. You have the mental image? Okay. Now somebody, maybe a leader, asks the first question. It's verse 25. Rabbi. Oh, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Kind of an interesting first question. Did anybody watch, I don't know, maybe this is a generational thing, but when I was a kid, I watched Looney Tunes, which were like reruns of old 1940s cartoons. Anybody else watch Looney Tunes? One of the Looney Tunes cartoons was Pepe Le Pew. Did you guys watch that? Pepe Le Pew is a cartoon. There's two skunks. One of them is male, one is female. The male skunk is Pepe. And he's always chasing around this female skunk that he's in love with. And he's like this Romeo lovesick type skunk. And each cartoon, he's chasing her and she's just trying to get away from him. And he'll find her and he'll, it's like, you know, he like leans on and he talks to her like, like he's her boyfriend or something. Like they have this familiarity. And her response almost every time is like, like get away from me. Like, I don't, like this is not our relationship. Like leave me alone. And so then she runs. When they show up here, remember Jesus ran away from them. And they look all over the place. And they show up. And like, when did you get here? I'd see Pepe Le Pew. Like I, <laughs> they don't start with, um, yeah they, yeah, they don't start with, why did you run away? They don't start with, ooh, that was awesome. They don't start with, hey, are you, is it okay if we talk? No, they start with, it's like instant, enthusiastic, familiar conversation. As if they were part of Jesus' inner circle. As if he had never slipped out and tried to get away from them. Um, a few things about this. Clearly, these people are interested in Jesus, right? Okay. Uh, they're coming with this casual, there's, there's like, I don't know. I'm picking up like this familiarity thing that we just talked about. There's enthusiasm here. Uh, they show up. Now, if Jesus was trying to start a movement, or if Jesus was working with like one of our contemporary church planting networks trying to plant a church in one of our cities uh, in the way that we do, uh, what, would ha- what happens when a key leader trying to start a movement or maybe a church planter or something like that, all of a sudden a big crowd of people show up who are uh, friendly and familiar and enthusiastic about your cause? What should you do? 
Well, you should match their enthusiasm, their familiarity, and invite them in and get them to join you. This is like every movement starter's dream. For a bunch of people to come out of nowhere, let's skip the introductions, let's just act like we already know and trust each other, and let's just get to business. But does Jesus do that? No. Rabbi, when did you get here? He doesn't. In fact, none of their questions does he answer directly. Instead, he actually exposes something about their question by going straight to their heart, by speaking to the matter behind their question. They show up, Pebula Pew, Rabbi, when did you get here? (laughs) You're not looking for me because you want me. You're looking for me because you want to be fed with bread by me. He speaks right to the heart, to their inner motives. I see in this, in this crowd of people, there's religious enthusiasm here, but they have an agenda. It's not pure-hearted. It's not driven by authentic spiritual desire. It's driven by something else. And Jesus doesn't play along. It just exposes it. Now before we examine, we'll examine the content of Jesus' answers in a little bit. Right now I just want to look at the questions. And this question, I think, reflects something uh, that still happens today. I, I know people like this. I wonder if you know people like this. There's lots of religious enthusiasm. Maybe people who love church people who want to be a part of the church thing, but there seems to be too, too much familiarity. Is too much, there's, some, there's some kind of agenda. Uh, think about... Well, maybe, church, maybe sometimes church leaders who have a, want to use their platform for personal gain, religious seekers always on the hunt for the next spiritual high. Or I think about... Um, If you hang around pastors and church planters in Portland and talk about the last 20 years of church planting in Portland, uh, there seems to be a pattern of different... A a church pops up and it grows quick and it's the cool church for a while and then it sort of fades and it fades when the next big church pops up and it's the cool church and then it fades when the next cool church pops up and that's because it's the same group of people going from each pop-up cool church to pop-up cool church I've been a part of a lot of conversations with Portland pastors and church planters. We kind of laugh about this. Um, there's, we know this. We know Pepe Le Pew religious enthusiasm. So just, that's there. Jesus says, I'm not doing that. Next question, verse 30. When Jesus doesn't really play along with their thing, then they ask, they, they push in a little harder. What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now we see a picture developing here. People are enthusiastic for Jesus. Enthusiastic for... Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped one. Next one. 20. Sorry. Skipped a page. What must we do to do the works God requires? That's it. Jesus kind of... He's not playing their Pippa Pew game. And then they follow up with, What must we do to do the works God requires? If the first question reflects something about religious enthusiasm without, but maybe with a little bit of a 
slanted agenda. And this question gives us a peek at what that agenda might be. These people wanted to do good things. They wanted to be good people who did good things. Now remember, Galilee, it's a revolutionary hotbed. If you watch, like, think Star Wars. You watch the Star Wars movies or the shows, there's always, like, some town or some village with good people, but the Empire's presence is heavy. People are having secret meetings. They're thinking about how to overthrow the Empire. There's always this undercurrent of how are we going to how are we going to rebel? How are we going to get them out of here? I think there's something to that here. During this day and age here in these, this people group, doing the works of God was so closely tied with overthrowing Rome and overthrowing the empire. These people wanted to do good things. Remember, they tried to make him king. That was a revolutionary thing. These folks want to change the world. And they saw Jesus as a person or a power that they wanted on their side. Now, we look at this and again, I see something about people I know, people we know, something about our context. We have a lot of folks in Portland that want to change the world. It's kind of one of the things that we're known for, inside and out of church. Jesus is attractive to culture warriors, activists, world changers, revolutionaries. Does Jesus entertain their enthusiasm here? Not really. Again, he turns the tables on their questions. He basically says, look, this is not about you doing work for God. This is about God doing work in you. And we'll get, again, to his answer in more depth in a moment. But for right now, I just want to point out there. Do you see a pattern in the way these people are coming to Jesus? They're enthusiastic. They're familiar. Oh, we know Jesus. Yeah, we want Jesus. We want good works. We want to change the world. We want to change the culture. Okay, next one. Now, what sign will you do? What sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? That's verse 30. And now we see the picture developing. They're enthusiastic. They want to do good works. But they're also kind of oblivious to the actual time and space that they're living in. They ask for a sign from Jesus. Remember in John's Gospel, signs are miracles. And they cite the story of Moses and the Exodus and God bringing manna down. Remember Moses was God's man. Uh, He worked with God and manna came down from heaven and fed all the people. What sign will you do? Do these folks not remember that just before, like the day before Jesus multiplied bread for thousands of people? It's almost like they forgot. Or maybe they do remember and they want him to do it again. Hey, you did the bread thing one time. Moses did the bread thing every single day for 40 years. What are you going to do now? But again, we, we see enthusiasm. We see passion to change the world. We see excitement and familiarity with Jesus. 
but we can put next to questionable motives. We can put sort of a level of just being unaware, maybe ungrateful, out of touch. It's like these are folks that want to take more than they give. They want Jesus, do it again, do it again. I read one commentator that called this Moreism. <laughs> People who, it's just like this, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Um, I can hear the seagulls on Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. And low awareness, high demand. And again, I, I just think, do I know people like this? Oh, yeah. Um, so these are the questions Jesus is getting. And something about these questions reflects maybe something about the people, but also it brings to mind for me, hopefully for you, people around us. Maybe ourselves. Coming to Jesus with questions. Uh, now let's look at Jesus' response to these first three questions. Remember it was, how'd you get here? It was, uh, what must we do to do the works of God? And then what sign might we see? How does Jesus respond to these? Well, if we read the whole discourse like we did earlier, I think maybe you noticed earlier that if you read it, it's not, John is not really, maybe Jesus taught this way, I, I don't know, at least the way John records it. Uh, it, it it's not really a, a linear progression of thought. It kind of moves in circles. Jesus is speaking over and over and over again, repeating himself around one big idea. Every question is answered with one big idea. And do you know what that one big idea is? It's this. Guys, I am the bread of life. He actually says it three times in the discourse. But every answer, he's matching with this idea. How did you get here? Uh, look, you're not coming to me because you want me. You're coming to me because you want the thing that I can do. Don't work for bread that perishes. Work for bread that's eternal. Actually, what does he say word for word? He says... Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal. First question. He's talking about himself as the bread of life. Um, over and over and over again. He's the food that endures to eternal life. He's the true bread from heaven, the bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Verse 41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Over and over again, Jesus answers with, I am the bread of life. Religious enthusiasm with questionable motives. I am the bread of life. Desire to do good works, change the culture, change the world. I am the bread of life. Want to take, 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 take more than you can give. I am the bread of life. Jesus matches every single question with this answer. At least the first three questions. 
Now, how should we interpret this? I am the bread of life. That sounds familiar. That sounds nice. Obviously, it's a metaphor that's endured through the ages. Obviously, it's a metaphor that we practice and take part in every single week. But what does it actually mean? What is Jesus trying to tell the religious enthusiast with questionable motives? What is Jesus trying to tell the culture warrior? What is Jesus trying to tell the person that wants to take more than they can give? What is Jesus trying to tell me? Because all three of those things have applied to me at different points in my own life. He's trying to say, I am the bread of life. Well, let's... um, Let's consider what he means by this. First, if Jesus is the bread of life, what does that mean? Well, it means that he is God's person. And that's important. These people want to cite Moses. And he's saying, look, it's not about Moses, it's about me. He is the bread of life. The divine life, the life of God is in his life. He is God's person. What this means is the the life part of bread of life is the life of God and it's in him. So far in John's gospel, we have seen Jesus over and over and over again in his preaching and his teaching draw attention to himself. Not necessarily his work, not necessarily his uh, program for personal development, not necessarily his plan for community living, no to himself, to his person and his relationship with the Father. Jesus wants these people and wants us to know he is God's person. And that's really important. Verse 27, don't work for the food that spoils. Work for the food that endures, what the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal. Verse 29, The work of God is this. Believe in the one that God has sent. Jesus is God's man. Uh, Verse 33. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down to give life to the world. He is the gift from the father. He is of God. Verse 45. Everyone who's heard the father and learned from him comes to me. If you hear the father's voice... Where do you go to follow it? You go to Jesus. Jesus is God's man. Over and over again. Verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. Father sends the Son. The Son's life is the Father's life. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is saying he's the bread of life The divine life is his life. He is God's man over and over again. If we want to understand Jesus' message, we have to understand his identity. So, I am the bread of life means he's God's man. He is of God. It also means he is for them. If his life is the divine life, then his life is also their life. He's he's the bread of life, the bread part. What do we do with bread? Well, we break it and eat it and we share it. We take it into ourselves. 
Jesus says it's, he's, he's the bread that is given to them. He's the bread that was sent from the Father to them. He's the bread that gives life to the world. He's the bread that is... Um, uh, what, what is it? Uh, verse 51. The bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Jesus is not answering their questions directly. In fact, every time, instead, every time they ask a question, Jesus is saying through this metaphor, look at me. I am from God. I am God's man, but I'm for you. I'm your man. Now, this can be a little frustrating if we want straight answers from Jesus. If we want Jesus to give fuel for our religious enthusiasm, if we want Jesus to join our cultural cause, or if we want Jesus to give, 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 it can be frustrating when he doesn't answer our questions directly. Instead, he just draws attention to his identity. But it's important because our agendas that we come to Jesus with When we come to Jesus with an agenda, we're coming to Jesus with our eyes on ourselves. And Jesus over and over again says, no, 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 look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Before we talk, look at me. And that's what he's doing here. Jesus doesn't want to give these people fuel for their religious enthusiasm. Jesus doesn't want to give these people, he doesn't want to sign up for their cause. He doesn't want to be their genie. Do you know why? Because Jesus doesn't love their religious enthusiasm. Jesus doesn't love their cause. And Jesus doesn't love their gimme, gimme, gimme. What does Jesus love? Jesus loves them. In fact, Jesus is the love from God for them. Do you see what's happening here? The people want to approach Jesus, take a hold of him, and then apply him to whatever their pet cause, their favorite feeling, whatever their little desire is in life. And Jesus' response is, I'm not doing that. I'm not playing your religious game. Do you know who I am? It means he's from God, it means he's for them, and it means he's eternal. He's the bread of life. This is eternal life. He says, verse 27, the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 35, whoever comes will never be hungry, will never go thirsty. Verse 40, whoever looks to the Son and believes will have eternal life. Verse 47, the one who believes has eternal life. Verse 51, the one who eats will live forever. Jesus matches these people's finite desires with a statement about his eternal identity. Um, It talks about eating the bread and living forever and talks about never dying. These statements in the text are not really about time as much as they are about fullness. I remember in the first, in the prologue, we hear John write, out of his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. Jesus is saying, 
you come to me with your what you think are your big desires that matter. I'm coming to you and I tell you that the depth of your desires is too shallow. What I have to give you is fullness. Jesus isn't deflecting their questions and not answering them directly because what they're coming to him with is necessarily bad. It's not bad to have religious excitement or to want to change the world or to desire to receive from God. It's just not enough. Jesus is telling them, what I have to give you is way too full for your little cup. Do you not understand? I am the bread of life. So the life of God is in his life and he comes into our life so we can be filled with God. So again, back in the crowd. We've searched for Jesus. We've found Jesus. We try to talk to Jesus. We try to get Jesus into our world, into our life, into our cause. And Jesus deflects, 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 deflects. Why? Because he can't be anything other than himself. And when he gives us himself, it completely envelops and overwhelms the, the, the questions that we come with. He's not deflecting their questions. He's overrunning their questions with a greater truth. He is much more than what they could ask for. Now, this is where the Judeans step in and ask the last two questions. Is this not Jesus, his mother and father we know? And then what does he mean we're supposed to eat his flesh? When people get a vision or get a look at who Jesus is for real, not just fuel for their religious enthusiasm, not just the power to join their cause, not just whatever blessing, the next blessing they want, but they really get and come in contact with his true claims that he is the fullness of God for you for eternity. And very often, well, there's only two ways for people to respond. To deny him or to surrender to him. And we see here in these, these Judeans, they're denying him. But they're denying him in a very, again, familiar and religious way. Oh, we know Jesus. We know Jesus. We have a place for Jesus. We know his mom and his dad. Ah! does this even mean eat his flesh drink his blood how do you even do that and again I see something about us it's so easy for us when we encounter the great mystery of who Jesus is to try to explain it away and make him familiar and approachable and pocket sized again but what's ironic about these last two questions is if we just take them at face value just take the words kind of remove them from their context isn't this the Jesus we know? How do you even eat his flesh and drink his blood? How do you even do it? And there's a way to actually ask these questions where it's not rejecting him, but these questions can be used to surrender to him. 
And I don't think that's what we see here. But it's a good reminder for us. Isn't this, when we get a, a vision of his fullness from the scriptures, from one another, from our worship, we get it and we say, wait a second. I thought I knew who Jesus was. This is something more. Isn't this the Jesus we know? That's a great opportunity for us to stop, ask that, and let Jesus respond with, I am the bread of life. We talked about last week, deciding to follow Jesus is not just something we do one time. It's something we do over and over and over and over again. And in every circumstance of your life, God curates those circumstances so you would get images and pictures and visions of Jesus from all these different places so at each place you can say, I see him and I receive him. So like the Judeans, we too should ask, isn't this the Jesus that we know? And then listen when he says, I am the bread of life. And then they ask, how do you even eat? How do you even drink? What is he even talking about? I think if their hearts weren't hard and they gave Jesus a chance to actually, well, I think if their hearts weren't hard, Jesus might have answered this question directly. But when we look at the gospel as a whole, we do see that he answers this one. How do you even eat? How do you even drink? How can he give us his flesh to eat? Well, he gives it to us like bread. And what do you do with bread? How do you eat bread? Well, you don't eat the whole loaf at once. You've got to break it or cut it, right? Well, how do we even eat his flesh? Well, he was broken for us, for the life of the world. And then bread, we don't just hold it. We've got to take it into our bodies. Paul calls that Christ dwelling our hearts by faith. Jesus called that believing and receiving. And then what else do we do with bread? Well, we sit around and we share it. So how do you even eat? Well, not on your own, but together. So what do we see in all of this? Here's what I see in this story. I see Jesus insisting that we accept him on his own terms, not on ours. And Jesus insisting that his true identity is something bigger and better than we could ever ask for. And it comes to us through his cross, breaking the bread. It comes to us through believing and receiving, eating bread. And it comes to us through our community, sharing the bread. It doesn't come to us through our religious enthusiasm. It doesn't come to us through our culture wars or our causes or our activism. And it doesn't come to us through our desires to want more and more and more blessing. But when I look at those three things, I see Portland. And I see me. And I see us. And what is God calling us to as a new church well we could be if we wanted to be we could try to be a religious enthusiasm church and we might get some people in here or we could try to be a culture war activist church we might get some people in here or we could try to be a 
Get your blessing today on whatever church. We might get some people. But those things are not enough. They're too shallow. Let's be a bread of life church. Which starts with my faith and starts with your faith. What kind of Jesus are you looking for? What kind of Jesus are you asking questions to? And what kind of Jesus are you willing to receive? Is he from God? Is he for you? And is he eternal? Because that's the real thing. Let's pray.